We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Glamorous Trash, formerly known as Celebrity Book Club. On this podcast, we recap and book club celebrity memoirs, pontificate about pop culture, and sometimes we cry. If you have ever referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this is probably the podcast for you. Glamorous Trash is all about going high and low at the same time. Glamorous Trash is ordering ranch and a side of aioli. It's reading a People magazine at the library. It is a podcast that luxuriates in all the hot goss of celebrity memoirs while deconstructing the systems that allowed society to call these books trash in the first place. I'm your host, Chelsea Devontes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. And this is a Celebrity Book Club episode recapping and discussing Melissa Etheridge's new memoir titled Talking to My Angels, published on September 5th, 2023, just days ago. This is her second memoir. Her first, which came out back in 2001, is titled The Truth Is, and thank God that I also read her first memoir because there is an odd relationship between the two. Her new memoir is a book that probably shouldn't have been written, but it was anyway. So let's dive into everything that is inside this book. And please know this episode will discuss drug use, grief, and sexual abuse, so please take care when listening. Call 
guest today hosts the popular podcast Pantsuit Politics, which was named one of 2021's best shows by Apple Podcasts and has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Good Morning America, The Guardian, Elle Magazine, Parents Magazine, so much more. They are also the authors of Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided, which also I have a copy of and it's so good. And the book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, a guide to grace-filled political conversation. Please welcome Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers. Thank you, Chelsea. We're so happy to be here. Welcome back. I want to welcome back since we've been on this podcast before, which I like put on my resume. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Because, well, first off, we should tell everyone we're best podcast friends. We are. We somehow became best friends via podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I am calling you my best friends. You'll just have to live with that label. Already doing that. Already doing that. <laughs> but thanks. And yeah, we covered Huma Abedin's book, which was such a fun episode. And I will say like, there's some things I got from that episode. And I told Beth this on Instagram, but there was something that Beth said in that episode that I put in my book forever. <laughs> so excited. We'll keep it a surprise for everyone. And um, it was such a good episode. And then I thought, you know, what better to follow that I was up? to say, how different could we get here, guys? <laughs> I mean, I can't believe I did this to you guys. Because, <laughs> you know, I was waiting. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to find the perfect book to invite Sarah and Beth back. And we all share a love for Brandi Carlisle, mm. the Judds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Melissa Etheridge, for me, felt like she is like a sister in that category. And I thought maybe she'll be like the perfect fit for us. Okay, so first, let me just ask you this. Before you read this book, what was your relationship to Melissa Etheridge? I love Melissa Etheridge. I love that smoky voice. Mm -hmm. I love the intensity of her lyrics. Like her music is all main character energy, right? And I really enjoy it. I've not seen her in concert, you know, so I'm not like Indigo Girls level fandom for me with her, but I'm a big fan of her work. And I thought that this would be a very intense, like meaty read based on everything yeah. I knew about her musically. That's a correct assumption. It was, it, <laughs> it was not my experience of this book. <laughs> I was very surprised. Very surprised. And Sarah, what was your relationship to her? I would not describe myself as a Melissa Etheridge fan. I mean, I grew up in the yeah. 90s, so obviously I have an understanding of her life. Like, I would say I'm more a student of her biography through the lens of, like, celebrity gossip and experience than I am of her music. I can sing, like, the choruses of a couple of her songs, but that's about it. I don't right. own any Melissa Etheridge. Out. She came to my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, and everybody freaked out, came to our Performing Arts Center, and I was like, I have absolutely no desire to see this woman in concert. So I didn't even go. <laughs> I was so excited. Her and Nelly, man, listen, they set Paducah on fire when they came through. Nelly. Nelly wow. came. It was a big okay. deal. Nelly Furtado or Nelly the Rapper? Nelly the Rapper. And okay, because honestly, it could have been either. <laughs> No, I went to CC Winans the day before Nelly. That's the concert I chose to go to. But yeah, not a fan. Knew about her. Definitely remember the Rolling Stone cover coming out. Definite like hardcore memory in my head from the 90s or the early 2000s, whenever that came out. And they released the Crosby sperm donor information. And I had a peripheral knowledge of her bad divorces. But her music is not or never has been my jam. 
Interesting, interesting, because I would karaoke come to my window nice. right now. Uh, can't say I know all the words, but I bet I could karaoke <laughs> I know it to, to medium level. <laughs> okay, so what is your guy's relationship now to her mm. post-reading her memoir? Mm. You still a fan, Beth? I still like the music. That was a long pause. <laughs> I would like to spend some time with all of the people written about in this book. Yeah. Normally, I set up episodes to, like, go through the beats of the book. That cannot happen here. But we are going to... Because there aren't beats. (laughs) Yeah. The actual physical writing and structure of this book is astonishingly bad. Mm. It's unbelievable. And I have some examples that I'll go through it. And I also have a theory that I feel I would go to court with it. Let me just give it to you guys. I think this is a money grab. Yeah, this is one of those celebrity books. I have a screenshot mm-hmm. to prove that we have already discussed that theory. Okay, send me that because I'll put it on all the grams. Um, we got receipts. Yeah, so t- it, this one is like the classic, like celebrity memoirs are trash. They're always lying. It's money grab bullshit. Like that's definitely what this is. I'm glad we all agree. And then my second feeling is not only is it that, but I think Melissa got high once and it changed her life. And I think she sat down with her collaborator, the co-author slash full author of this book. And I think she just talked to her about weed and spirit. We'll learn a lot about spirit. And then the author, her name is Billy Fitzpatrick, was like, how about some life stories? And Melissa said, nope. Why don't you go read the first book? And so I will say... 60 to 70% of the stories in the first book are repeated in the second. Wow. Wow. Some of them change, which I love. But it's like, I think Billy was sent to read the first book and just kind of put some stories in. And Melissa was like, yeah, I have nothing for you. I just love weed and spirit. And then she left after an hour. And then Billy came up with a book. That's what I think. Except for her son died. Her son freaking died. That didn't happen when she wrote the first book. No, no. But the way her son died, death is written about is so it's so distant yes distant is the uh, right word yeah it's like written from a thousand miles away and I just kept wondering like is this where Melissa is at with it and she really just shouldn't be writing about it yet or did they ask the ghostwriter to write about her son's death because it's yeah it's written so weirdly I mean, it's not a long book. If you took out the song lyrics, it'd barely be a book. I mean, there are pages right. and pages right. of just the song lyrics yeah. from all her albums that really extend the length of this book. So right. it'd be and a that's short what happens story. in the first book, too. Yeah. Same song lyrics just posted same, over and over the again. Same song? Yeah. The same songs. Yeah. Yes, often, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, the lonely child lyric that she writes for her grandma, you know, like that whole thing is in there. It's oh. all in there. Sorry, go ahead, Beth. Well, I struggled with following what was happening here at all because it was like, one day I'm playing in a bar and then maybe 10 pages later, we're going to visit with my good friend, Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. It's just these huge sections of life missing here. So I like your theory because if I were just using the internet to try to figure out what's happened to this woman, that's probably where I'd end up too. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's like they Googled Melissa Etheridge and copy pasted in order. And we're just like, this will do. Yep. Well, and that when you said, I want to talk to the other people in this book, I was like, yes, because what I do, what I always do when I read about celebrities, I was like, well, let's see what else is out there that they didn't include. Yes, um, that's right. And there a is lot. a lot, particularly around her divorce. Both of her that's ex-wives right. are not what I would call 
meek or quiet. They are more than willing to say exactly how they feel about her and how the divorces went down. They both seemed like ugly, ugly divorces. And so... As bad as it can get, As bad as it can get. And so when she talks about Linda, her new wife, who I do think she's been married to the longest, I'll give her that. You think so? Yeah, I I think so. I think it's like 10 years. I think they've been together quite a while at this point. And... To everyone listening, don't worry. We're going to take you through the timeline of the wives, but Linda is the third wife. Yes, the third wife. And I think they've been married since 2014, but she makes it sound like they were friends for this long period of time in the book. And Tammy Lynn Michaels, her second wife, is like, oh, no, I moved out. She moved right in. And I was like, wait, what? So when Beth said, like, I'd like to talk to other people, I'm like, "Mm -hmm." that's right. That's right. And I do think Melissa Etheridge, she loves an overlap. Mm. She loves a Venn diagram of a new relationship. Like you're still technically in the other and you just slap the other one on top and just kind of move to the right and you're in a new relationship. Okay, so let's go back to something. We just have to get a few things out of the way and then we're going to go real deep. First thing is that literally the book is like, I got high once. I ate too much weed. She doesn't call it weed. She calls it cannabis. Mm Mm-hmm. Then she calls it a hero dose. I didn't even know that was a thing. I don't know that it is. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like that marketing with skincare. You're like, your hero ingredients are blah. And it's just like, shut up. Come on. She used it like a term. But then I noticed later in the book, she said, that's why I call it a heroic dose. And I thought, okay, so we are admitting that this is your word. Yeah. And I think it's basically what I can find on it is from other (laughs) cannabis websites, which just say it refers to a significantly large dose of substance. I will also say her ghostwriter is mostly known for a lot of like wellness books. Oh, Um, so she's mostly done like that fills in some pieces for me. Yes. So it's very like clinical because I mean, she's going to talk about the exact same cannabis moment. What? Nine times. Yes. Nine times we're going to talk about this one night she got high that I'm going to say ruined her life, even though she would say saved her life. (laughs) So then that night she basically uh, gets a relationship with Spirit, who is her guide. Yeah. Her God. God. Her foundational principle. Yes. Her foundational principle. And Spirit tells her that the answer to everything in life is love. You know what? Um, yeah, that's a thing people say a lot. Absolutely. That is a common takeaway from a great drug experience. Yes. You know what? Great. We love it. Fine. No beef. But I will say we have this thing on the podcast now where like when someone is a type of Christian where we call it a Christian or Christian and it's when they're like, I've started a church for tax evasion, (laughs) but I'm going to talk about God and I'm going to be like a Kate Gosselin. It's a Christian or Christian of like, I'm going to say things in the name of the spirit and the Lord, but I'm not really going to mean them. I need a new word for like whatever this like new age, like the wellness version of that. Yeah, like the crook version of something that is very good and beautiful for some people, but has really gone off kilter here. Well, maybe that's just intrinsic. Like, it can only be big enough to be good if it's also big enough to be exploited. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, And she, I will say... I was ready for Melissa to tell me about spirit, but when she just started recapping and copy-pasting the four agreements from the book, the four agreements, what'd you guys think of that? I mean, did you guys come away with an understanding of spirit and and were you moved by it? I think that's a violation of the fourth agreement, do your best. (laughs) I think. Don't you? You're right. Because I don't think anyone here did their best. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I That's wasn't right. sure what I was going to be reading after that first chapter. I immediately yeah. texted Sarah and was like, I just need you to know that Melissa Etheridge got high from a chocolate chip cookie and has decided that she knows the secrets of the universe. <laughs> and I just need you to sit with that for a minute with me. And that's not a deal breaker. I have also pondered greater truths about the universe on chocolate chip cookies that do not contain cannabis. So, like, no, not a deal breaker. I'm with you. Not a deal breaker. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, Beth. I will say first paragraph in where we're talking about 9-11, and then we switch to chocolate chip cookies, weed, and then we talk about an angel, and I was like, what is going on? That's very important. I want to just read this sentence that goes kind of on the whole thesis of, this book paired with really bad writing, which is Mm. she's talking about the book and she says, please know this is not a story about death because she's talking about her son. It's really about the mighty power of spirit because it was spirit that came calling for me. It's about how Linda showed me what love really means. Ultimately, this book is an ode to love. It's a testament to vanquishing fear and learning to embrace all of what life brings us an unvarnished reflection on the many threads of my life which is a great way of saying absolutely nothing. Right. Reader, it was none of those things. It was none of those things. <laughs> uh, That's right. So let's hit a couple childhood stories, and then we got to get to the juice. I mean, there's a lot of juice in the childhood. Not for nothing. Yeah, you, okay, you're right. You're right. There's high-level juice where she's like, here's a headline, and then no details. Yes, it was wild. My sister joined a b- motorcycle gang, and you're like, wait, what? Nothing yeah, else. And which one? We and ne- also, it's not, I need more details. Right. What do you mean? She has a really terrible relationship with her mom, who is very unloving, and she sort of says she recreates that relationship in all her romantic relationships. Listen, I have a too long did not read. The mom reminded me so much of that uh, chick song. And I can't remember the dang name. There's that one where they talk about he sits in his chair every night. He doesn't engage with the family. Beth, which song is it? They give us a little, a little melody. It's the, called me for supper, but I never got up. I stayed right there in my chair. That's her mom. Top of the world. Top of the world. That's it. Yeah. That's her mom. The whole time I was reading, I'm like, that's this chick song. Like, just disengaged from the family. They called me. Yes. They want me there. No, I'm going to sit in my chair. I don't like the way my life is gone. I'm going to seclude myself from the family. My life is too difficult for me to hold the disappointment around so i'm just going to completely check out that's like that entire song yes yes good point the song Um, is better than this book so go just listen to the song when are any members of the chicks going to give us a memoir (gasps) that's what we should be reading (sighs) uh what i would not (sighs) they're my everything can we please get on your list to come back for that one when it does happen yes yes don't you get Um, anybody (laughs) else for that one chelsea i'll never forget i would never they are everything to me natalie's you know she has a memoir in her oh she does about that divorce she does okay she's singing half of it but i still want your memoir so Terrible relationship with her mom, loves her dad, but there's not a lot of depth to any of this. She does a past life regression in Uh. both books. So this story is copy-pasted two times where the past life regression specialist is like, you had a very tumultuous birth that scarred you. And then she goes to her mom and then she's like, then I got the truth of how I was born. Then she's like, the nurses held my mom's legs together till the doctor got there 15 minutes later which really damaged her coming out and like she had the scar from yeah. it. So it is brutal, but it was like, it wasn't, I didn't think it was set up. Correctly. And she was born on her sister's birthday or something, right? Yes. And then her sister hates her for the rest of her life because she's born on her birthday. But guess what, you guys, you know who has the same birthday as Melissa and her sister, Jenny? Who? 
Her wife, Linda. <gasps> no, Linda does not. Yes. Linda was born on the same day, the same year. Oh, yeah, she says that. She's like five hours, hours earlier. Yes. Yes. I forgot about that. Yes. yes. I forgot about that, too. That's not what helping her theme. emphasis on astrology and all that. That's going to feed that beast. You know what I'm saying? That's right. Mm -hmm. The problem for me is that all of this stuff about her family was written with no curiosity about anyone else whatsoever. Yeah. And barely of herself. Right. As well. So from there, she goes into that her sister sexually abused her for several years in their childhood. And that later she tells her mom about it and her mom doesn't care or doesn't believe her, which is just as damaging. And then also she stays in a relationship with her sister where she like buys her a house and sends her money. But then also she's part of a biker gang and she never hears from her again. You get glimpses. She'll say like, I think my mother was too smart for her life, basically. Like, she needed more challenge yeah. for a woman of her generation. She'll talk about her sister also lost her son to opioid overdose. I mean, come on. But, like, one sentence. Just enough. Like, Just enough to be like, so, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, baby. But you both have the same birthday and lost your son the same way? Nothing. Nothing? And also, the sexual abuse isn't... Does she go into that in any more in the first book? A little bit where she... Lightly describes what the abuse was like. Okay. Whereas in the second book, she was just like, she sexually abused me. We're moving on. Yeah. And her yeah. sister was like very rebellious, was like a very chaotic person in the home. And yeah. the father was nice to her, but he also seemed to be checking out in his own way. Yes. That's the problem. No curiosity here, right? It's all one dimensional. It's mom bad, dad sister good, bad. Yeah. sister abusive. Yes. That's it. Yeah. And one very, and I don't know why it's interesting, but the fact that I found interesting is that in the second book, she's like, one day my dad brought home a guitar for my sister. Yeah. And she looked at me like, look what I get and you don't get it. But then she didn't want to play with it anymore. And she begs her dad, like, can the guitar be mine? And he's like, well, you have to take lessons, blah, blah, blah. In the first book, her dad brings home a guitar, especially for her and just for her because she is special. What? And this is where I'm like, her father passed away between the books. So did she feel like maybe she could tell the real story in the yeah, second book? Yeah, okay. Or is this like how our memories change and evolve with time? Yeah. How does your memory change and evolve in time when you wrote a memoir? Well, that's what I'm saying. No one went back and looked. But I wish she would say, you know, when I told this story in the first book, yeah. I left right. out a piece that I had not explored yet or that didn't occur to me or that like, you know, the headline became my dad loves me. But the truth is that it was for my sister. Yeah. And I've always held on. Like none of that. None of that. Because she says that at one moment. She's like, I'm going to go back and reexamine the stories I've told myself about my life. And I'm like, OK, yes, that yes. sounds interesting to me. Let's do that. But then I don't think that she really did it. No, no. It was so weird to find that. And then, yes, music details, how she makes it. In the second book, no idea. <laughs> right? And in the first book, you do get a lot more of it, but it's still um, lacking. Because this is one of my first things I flagged. I love the metaphor she used at the beginning, where, and maybe it was the writer and not her, where she said, I compartmentalized everything. I shoved everything in a drawer, and then this thing happened to me, and it was like the drawer got dumped out, and I couldn't fit it all back in the drawer anymore. And I thought, oh, this is a really good way to explain how people compartmentalize and what happens once the drawer gets dumped out on the ground. Let's do this. But then she didn't really do it. Then she just dumped it all back in the drawer and closed it and then wrote a book from standing 20 feet away. Yeah. <laughs> looking at the drawer. The only thing I understand about how she made it is that she started to attract a small following and someone in that following either was or knew someone who was married to 
a producer. That's right. But like it was playing on the sidewalk to superstardom without any detail about what happened in between. Which is wild because she played a lot of gigs as a kid. Well, that's what I was going to say. She was like making a real salary at some points as a teenager, but it's like Yeah, because this is another point I marked where she says, I was about 12 and they'd taken a family vacation to Colorado, an exceptional luxury for us. And she said, I had paid for it with the money I'd saved for my gigs. She remembered the trip for another reason. I'm like, you're not going to talk about the fact that you were 12 years old paying for your family's vacation. That's not normal. No, but also it makes no sense with everything else she's written either. You're like, wait, there's no seeds here laid for that. This to me was a thread throughout the book too. Like her spirit encounters have not resolved her money issues because it was really important to her to tell us about how everyone was living off of her the whole way through. That's such a good point. Listen, this is where the Google search will really serve you. She really does have some truly bananas alimony and child support payments going on. I mean, how much do we think she's paying out per month? At one point, I I thought I read that Julie Cipher, maybe it was between the two of them, it was like $80,000 a month or something insane. I think it's even more. I think it's way more. And I'm thinking, like, how's she paying for all this? This book. Okay, so let's move into the partners. And I want to, again, point out the writing that drove me crazy. So I'm going to read the last paragraph of chapter four into the first paragraph of chapter five. So she said, but wounds don't just go away. They didn't mend on their own just because I ignored them. The cover-up would not hold. Something was bound to remind me that there were wounds that still needed healing. And that's precisely the moment when I met Julie Cipher, the woman I would be involved with for over 10 years. And you're like, ooh, wow. Like, you've really set us up. All right, let's get into Julie. First sentence of the next chapter. I was 28 years old when Chris Blackwell took me under his wing. He oversaw my musical direction. You're like, what? Like, you're ending on a name introduction, then you're beginning on a name introduction, but it's two different people, two different timelines. Like, what are you talking about? It made me really mad. But somehow that story gets into Julie introducing herself to Melissa. Julie is married to Lou Diamond Phillips. Who they end up being friends. Did you catch that at the end? That's right. Melissa threw some incredible shade in the book. She did come in here to let us know that she is friends with all her ex-wives, ex-husbands. As well as Jennifer Aniston and Steven Steven Spielberg Spielberg. and a host of other A-list. Yes, exactly. Like, wow. Okay, so Julie is her first wife. Julie is married to a man, fully has an affair with Melissa, even though she's like, no, we didn't, but you did. Mm -hmm. And then she divorces Lou and then they become partners. And this is before gay marriage is legal. And so I want you guys to tell me the story of Julie as you know it from the second book so that I can tell you what I know of it from the first book. Oh, well, this is hard to detach from what I knew pop culture wise. Like she skips. She does this with Tammy, too. The narrative thread seems to be, we had incredible chemistry, but it was toxic from the beginning. Oh, then they want a baby that I don't want. That's also Mm -hmm. a thread between the two marriages. But between Tammy and Julie. Tammy and Julie, I want a baby I don't want, but I am the best parent. And then the marriage breaks apart. She seems like she's like, they're toxic and they don't work for me and I have to leave. And then it's a terrible, messy divorce. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so some details I got in the first book about Julie. Immediately after she and Julie get together, Melissa introduces her to KD Lang. Okay. And Julie's like, I need to fuck KD Lang. I gotta sleep with her. And Melissa's like, oh, please don't. I don't want that. And she's like, sorry, gotta. I'm newly into my sexuality. I've never been with a woman before. I gotta see what else this is like. 
Katie Lang is like, yeah, I probably got to sleep with Julie. And they sleep together kind of against Melissa's wishes, but also maybe Melissa technically said yes, being afraid she would leave Julie. Then there's a hot tub story I got to talk about. Um, Okay, here you go. It's page 122. (laughs) She says, I just love this hot tub. She says, a couple years later, I was sitting in a hot tub with Ellen DeGeneres, Katie Lang, Julie, a couple other women. I mean, this is just a hot tub of powerful lesbians. I love it. And we were going around the tub asking each other to say a word that described each of us. Sounds like a dangerous game in a hot tub full of sexy women, but okay. When it was Katie's turn to describe me, she said generous. I think she was saying that she thought I was very generous to open up that part of my relationship with my partner to someone else. I didn't look at it that way, although I appreciated the gesture on Katie's part. Melissa. I know. And then, wait, there's more. So then they are with Katie Lang at like one of the inauguration events for yeah, yeah, Bill that. Clinton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where she, so she talks about both stories in both books and where she like comes out as gay officially is the first time. But in the first book, Katie Lang is there. And Katie, having already slept with Julie against her wishes, goes first and talks about like how proud she is. Katie Lang is like, I'm proud to be gay, blah, blah. Here's the mic, Melissa. (laughs) And then Melissa comes out. She was just sort of like, I didn't even know I was going to say anything. And then one really small detail is that when she talks about being at that event, the one name in 2001 that she name checks as being in the stands with them is Elvira. Cassandra. And we won't know till Cassandra's memoir two years ago that she was gay as well. But in this memoir, she's like, can you believe Cassandra was in the stands with us for this like, you know, big lesbian moment. LGBTQI. Yeah. Uh-huh. Isn't that funny? So wow. she was like a little bit outing her. Yes. That's not a small detail. That's that, a big deal. I know, but I think, I think everyone else read it as like, whoa, cool. Elvira was there. Wink, knock, nod. Yeah. I think that kind of tracks, though, because you do get a sense throughout this book that, like, any place she can take a little bit of power, she's taking it. That's right. I will say, for as bad as this book is, she's 10-10 with that skill set. Little nips and tucks everywhere. Yeah. And, Um, I mean, the book gives you enough context to be like, God, this is really sad. But then that juxtaposition with, like, the self-helpy, like, actually, I'm writing this because I've achieved enlightenment is pretty grating. Yeah, I think that's correct. Just last Julie details to give you everything about Julie so we can talk about her is Julie tells Melissa that she's not attracted to her anymore and they go to therapy and she tells her I'm not gay. And she was like, I'm just not gay. I'm not a gay woman. But she'd been with her for 10 years. She'd had kid children with her. She needed to explore that sexuality with Katie Lang. That's right. And then she sleeps with a man behind Melissa's back and has an affair with him. And like it being a man is like also a big piece of the relationship and her just being like, I'm not a lesbian ever or anymore. I don't know. And that leads to the divorce. And I have to say this. I was so sympathetic. And I thought the two parts, one where she talked about sort of the internalized homophobia where you think I just got to take what I can get, even as a famous gay woman. Like, I just got to, you internalize it in a way where you just think, like, that a full, healthy relationship is not available to me, so I just have to take what I can get. This. Yeah. And also just the pressure of one of the first women to come out, especially in the music industry, and to have these public relationships 
where you had these big weddings and you're on the cover of Rolling Stone talking about the new American family, like the enormous pressure. I was so, so sympathetic to that. I cannot imagine what that's like to feel like you are representative of, you know, all gay families. And I don't know if y'all remember this, but I do feel like there was this thread in the 90s and the early aughts. I think you felt it around Ellen DeGeneres and Anne Hecht. This thing like, are we just convincing other people to be gay? Because that was like the anti-gay narrative was like that we were battling out about whether this was a choice or not if somebody was really born this way. And so it felt... You know, just making those arguments around LGBTQ community, like it was so fraught when you weren't gay. I can't imagine what it felt like being one of the very few celebrities out and gay and feeling like not only is this an argument, this is my life. And I have to live this argument out on behalf of the entire community that has been closeted like that sucks. Yes. Yeah. And my only experience with it is keeping it a secret. Yes. Like you're not even experienced talking about it. And Interestingly enough, she talks about Katie Lang coming out and how it didn't affect their album sales and how she goes, oh, wow, okay, maybe I can do this and it won't affect me. But then also in the book, she talks about sitting in the hot tub with Ellen DeGeneres and telling her she's got to come out. She's got to come out. And then she doesn't cover in the book how it destroys Ellen's career. And so what you're saying of like the pressure you must feel and how hard it must be, I wish we'd gotten more of that. I think there's like a sentence or two. Yeah. She references it a couple times, both times with both divorces. She says, I was just worried people are going to be like, see, it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, and with Julie, she says in like a sentence, I always had this fear that maybe she wasn't really gay, but then it just like sits there. And as a reader, I thought, I want to understand this experience better and what this must have felt like and how it unfolded. And then I thought, well, Beth, maybe it's none of your business. But then I thought, well, she wrote the book. Like, I don't know. (laughs) I'm really struggling here with Melissa's boundaries. (laughs) I think Melissa is struggling with Melissa's boundaries. Yes. And it's just interesting, too, because, like, I can't project this onto it. But what I wished she would say is, like, you know, we didn't have language and culture to discuss, like, fluid sexuality. Mm pansexuality, bisexuality, like, yes, you know, it's like gay or not gay. And Julie was obviously having this struggle, but there's, you know, there's not any grace for that in the book because she just hates her so much. She hates Julie so much. And then from there, she's really going to go straight into Tammy. But the one thing that I have to point out that drove me crazy is that in the first book, she said, Julie really wanted a child, but it was really important to us that our sperm donor not be anonymous and that our child be able to know who their dad is, like meet him and know their lineage and know all of that. It was just so important to us. So we knew we had to know the sperm dad, (laughs) the sperm dad. (laughs) Amazing, Chelsea. So anyways, (laughs) they're just like having dinner one night with David Crosby and his wife, Jan. And I guess Jan is like, what about David? And he's like, yeah, what about me? And they're like, oh my gosh, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, this could be a gift to you. And this is also where I want to point out that David Crosby was also Drew Barrymore's surrogate father for a time. Like they met in rehab and he is Drew Barrymore's. Yeah, like a pseudo father figure for a long time when she was 14. Yeah. If you guys want to hear that episode, it's wild. But they're in rehab. They're literally in rehab together. And she like Drew is made to talk to David like he's her dad to work through her father issues. I'm not sure that's a good clinical practice. (laughs) Practice, but it happened. Anyways, so David Crosby, so, so lovely to do this with them. When she gets together with Tammy, she says, 
Tammy really wants to have a kid and I don't want to have a kid, but I said, yes, okay, we'll have a third. And then they use an anonymous sperm oh, donor. Oh, that's interesting. And by the way, I'm, I, I don't know if y'all know this, but I'm donor conceived and this stuff really gets me. And I'm like, in the first book, you knew how important this was for your children. Yep. And in the second book, no. you're like, eh, fuck it. Yes. No, I knew that about you. And that's why we do need to exchange cell phone numbers. Because I need to know everything you think about the Wall Street Journal piece about the guy who has 97 kids and who's like a pursuing a relationship with them. And to that, I say, which one? Do you know how many of those there are? Oh my gosh. And I think that's like, why aren't people recognizing that there shouldn't be nine to 12 one man made a hundred children with yes. his firm documentaries? Like perhaps something is distinctly wrong with this practice. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, if there's 15 documentaries, there's a hundred more waiting. Okay, we cannot do this. However, I just want to say I'm really mad at Melissa for not even like addressing it in the book or for treating her children so differently. I'm just mad. Yeah, I agree. I'm mad. But there's a thoughtlessness about everything having to do with the kids. It's so weird how she says, like, I knew that we weren't in a good, healthy place for this, but sure, why not? And then I went on tour. For a yes. long time. Like, then I was just gone. Then I left. I feel like she just lacked the capacity to, like, sit down and think for a second, how is this going to change my life? And how can I, like, see into the future a little bit with this? Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, this acquiescing to your partner, like, is not the right decision. And is that what happened? Yeah. That's a good question. Especially after all this beating down her own mom. There's, yeah. like, no self-reflection about, like, what patterns do I want to create going forward. She'll try it on. She'll be like, I was in a covenant with my children. I want to be like, this sounds really nice. But anyone who has parented in the, what I will call just labor intensive, gritty way would never describe it like that. Mm -mm. Fulfilling that covenant doesn't sound that pretty. That's just the truth. It just doesn't. It doesn't shine up that pretty in talk of spirit and connection Because it's a very intense, intimate, personal relationship. Like, it's just messy in the way any intimate relationship is very, very messy. So when someone's talking about parenting at that high level like that, I'm like, I got some red flags because that's not how I experience parenting. That's not how I experience being parented. Totally. What is exceptionally odd is that to, to bring a child into this world through IVF, through sperm donation... There are so many decision points along the way. There's yes. financial paperwork. There's doctor paperwork. Like, this is not an easy process. It's very, very hard. You go through multiple, multiple steps. And at no point at any one of those steps, like, you cannot just easily acquiesce to your partner. A lot goes I don't know, this. though. I bet you money smooths that path out real well. Mm, where you're like, here's the money. Go, uh-huh. go do your thing. Like, if you're not trying to work full-time jobs and do the hormone shots and the doctor's appointments, it's a labor-intensive task. But if you can dedicate yourself to it like a part-time job because your partner's a rock star. But here's the know. problem. We just read a book about this, and we don't know any of the answers to these questions. That's so true. We don't know what <laughs> yeah. these discussions were like. We don't know when she what she was there for versus what she wasn't there for. I don't know. Was she there when they were born? I have no idea. Like, yeah. there's nothing oh, yeah. in this book about that. Yeah, wow. children are like, yeah, why don't we know that? <laughs> yeah, places seriously. Went, yeah. Uh, uh, uh. yeah, great, great point. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back. Hey. 
Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults how I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes, some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. Let's continue the conversation. Well, I will say Julie gets a lot more time and space than poor Tammy. Poor Tammy. Who, this is how out of it I was, you guys. I totally forgot. Because she was saying Tammy, and I was like, oh, okay, Tammy, you know. Blah, blah. And I was like, oh, she's getting a first name because this is Tammy Lynn My- from the show Pop- yeah, Popular. Yeah, Tammy Lynn Michaels, baby. I remember this. I remember <laughs> yes. this relationship better than the Julie Cypher relationship. Uh- so Beth called out the, the difference with Jennifer Aniston, Steven Spielberg, and blah, blah, blah. So first off, I want to say the exact same paragraph is in both books. And the paragraph is on like Wikipedia or People Magazine, which is why I'm like, okay, Melissa didn't write this book in any way. We planned a huge wedding. It was a beautiful white wedding with about 200 of our closest friends and family. Al Gore came, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, Jennifer Aniston, and Kate Capshaw and Steven Spielberg. Like, why why did you tell us this? And it's like, oh, because someone copy-pasted it from somewhere else. Yeah, because that's the names you would list when that wedding happened. Exactly, exactly. And then Tammy kind of gets the short shaft. She's just kind of bad and not there. And and really- Taskmaster, remember? She's really hard. She's like cool with the kid, the older kids. And all of a sudden she has her kids. And then she like, there's a little evil stepmother vibe. There's like yes. undercurrent of evil stepmother mm. going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And they have twins. Yes. So that's another thing too. Melissa says, oh, what's another third kid? Let's have, you know, she can get pregnant. And then they have twins. 
But remember, um, the psychic said that she was going to have three kids, but it still counts because they're twins, so it only counts as one. Did you catch that? We're going to get into the astrologist, but first... We have to talk about Linda real quick. Linda. So as she's married to Tammy, she's like, my good friend Linda was helping me out. And Linda is the showrunner of the show Nurse, Nurse Jackie. Jackie, which I loved. I love that show. It was so good. Edie Falco, though. That's all on Edie. I mean. But it was so good to the point where I'm like, okay, not only did Melissa not write the book, she didn't even hand it to Linda. Yeah. Because I know True. Linda good would have point. cleaned up some of this structure. Isn't the tabloid version of this story that Linda was Tammy's friend? Yes. I'm not going to say that's the incorrect version of the story. I think that's true. They both come from television. Yeah. And after they get together, Melissa tells us Linda went on couples vacations with us. Linda held our children first. Linda was around for everything. Linda hung out with us. Linda was our best friend. And it's like. Well, and on the internet, Tammy is like, Linda stole my wife. Linda moved yeah. in after me. I moved out. Linda moved in. There, there was a Venn diagram overlap for sure, according to Tammy anyway. Yeah, well, and according to Melissa. Melissa was like, Linda needed somewhere to go. So I said, why don't you move in? But we were just strictly friends. And then six months later, we realized we're in love with each other. Well, and there's also kind of like a vibe of if Tammy had loved me better through my cancer... Yes. But Linda was oh, the yes. person who came in to help me with that, which there I thought was definitely a, a vibe. It was a very cruel way to approach this in a book. Yeah, it was like Tammy wasn't going to be able to handle that I was sick. So Linda. Could, well, yeah. and I just kind of feel like, look, we never know what's like in somebody else's relationship. Well, we do when they write it down. Right. But yeah, go ahead. And people's divorces <laughs> get nasty for all kinds of reasons. But when you have two tabloid level nasty divorces in a row, I'm not saying it's a pattern. I'm just saying it's suspicious. You know what I mean? The common element here, baby, is you. Because, again, you didn't tell us about being with Tammy through any of this pregnancy to twins. But you let us know that she didn't go to chemotherapy with you. Yep. There's just Mm, no identifying with anybody else happening here. Closest she gets is she admits, I peaced out. I'd go on tour. Yeah, and she'd be like, I regret being gone. She says me going on tour when Julie was pregnant the first time is probably the worst thing she ever did. And so then she was with Julie for her pregnancy with their second child, Beckett. But then you don't know what happens with Tammy and the other kids. No, I mean, her timeline is the albums and the tour, not the relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The easiest to track timeline is the release of the albums. You're so right, because we're going through the song lyrics. Mm Because I was like, why are the other life events just like flying around here? Yeah, because the albums are what mark time. Yeah, and I mean, like, I I have to say, when I was starting to understand that Linda was their best friend, I was like, this is a level of, I mean, betrayal. Betrayal. Yes. That's the vibe Tammy Lynn Michaels has when she talks about it. A person that was betrayed. Very true. And as you mentioned, Melissa had breast cancer and beat it and has been in remission. That's about two pages. I learned more about her gut health yeah. in this book. Mm-hmm. Found that helpful. A lot about the good, good, good and bad bacteria. I did think it was interesting that it was this old school chemo drug they don't even use anymore that basically just burned you from the inside out. I did think that was sort of interesting. Just yeah, absolutely. It's like a medical absolutely. history about how we used to treat cancer that we don't do as much anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. And then we get into our psychic moment, which is just dismal of how it's used. <laughs> I was thinking recently about something my astrologer once told me years ago, long before I became a mother. Every year for my birthday, I'd seek her out to touch base with the world we cannot see but know is there. She told me I was going to have three children, the first one willful, and that is absolutely Bailey. 
My second child, the astrologer said, would be my work. Indeed, Beckett was work. Energy to get him up in the morning, energy to calm and soothe him, energy to help him discover interest and passion, endless work. And then she said, the third child would be my sola. Do you guys know what that soul dash A-H? And I'm like, is this an accent thing? <laughs> you know no what? Idea. Let me just look this up real quick. Sola. Google says, no, it's a heroic dose. She made it up. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, the third child of my Sola, the lovely twins, who must have appeared in her vision, joined as one. Okay, cool. Then she sort of uses this to talk about Beckett, who is her son who died in the pandemic from a fentanyl overdose. And she said, the astrologer also predicted that his years from 19 to 21 would be the hardest, telling me that if he makes it past 21, he's going to be okay. This gave me hope. Even though astrology is one of the oldest sciences, I didn't think what she was telling me was automatically Beckett's destiny. It's always up to us to create our lives. And I feel like we should talk about Beckett here. I just feel so sad this is the story. It's basically that he's a difficult child who rebels a lot in school and them being like confused with what's going on with him. Can we stop there for a minute? Yeah. That really bothered me. Yeah. Do I think that some children are born more sensitive to their surroundings? Absolutely. I have one of them. Do I also think that you should own the fact that this very sensitive child was going through a very messy divorce and that you would peace out for long periods of time? I would like you to acknowledge that as well, because that's not his personality. It's like she really kind of set this up as like, he just couldn't find his path. Baby, he had shitty guides. I don't mean to be ugly, but there was no stability. You're right. There was no mention of, well, me and his mom were viciously ripping each other apart. When he was on the cover of Rolling Stone as an example of a new type of America. Come on, guys. If you feel the pressure as an adult, what do you think that felt like as a kid? And also for anyone who hasn't seen this Rolling Stone cover, it's her and Julie and David Crosby and the kids. And it's basically like they're like in like a forest, like an Eden kind of hippie situation. It is a cover that would not be done today. Like no. the nakedness of one of the kids, like it, it, it would not be done today. And, and it's like a pitch for a sitcom. It's the new normal, you know, like two lesbian moms and their sperm donor father and their rock musicians. And here are the kids. And you're like, OK. And like um, it's hard. Like I have family members who have struggled with addiction. It's not, it's so simple. It's like, well, if his mom hadn't been a rock star, he might not have had any problems. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there is an interchange here with the classic, like, nature, nurture, whatever. Like, some people are born more sensitive. Some people, for a lot of reasons, cannot provide that stability to their children. I'm not saying she needs to, like, blame herself for the death of her son. That's not what I'm saying. But she has a platform, and she can name and help other people by owning some of this instead of saying, sometimes your kid's just going to go this way. Like there was just this vibe of there's nothing you can do about it. And sometimes kids aren't meant to be here for a long time. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you're right. It's the way she's writing about it. I can't speak on what happened, though I will say she did something masterful here. And if I didn't have my own history, I bet I wouldn't have caught it, which is that David Crosby is famously in rehabs for drug addiction. Most of his adult life. It's a big part of who he is. And they know this is their son's father. You know this. And like, again, this is why it's important to know where you come from. Because when Beckett starts using drugs early on, you know with medical history, this is something that's going to need like extra care and time. So many people have addiction that runs in their family. But it's sure easier to, to work with it when you know. And they knew. They knew this And he starts using 
drugs, young, yeah. young, like 14, they're finding cocaine and certain things like that. And it's always dealt with, well, he knew that I smoked cannabis. So maybe he thought I was being a hypocrite, but we just couldn't seem to stop him. And then later she writes, hadn't we done everything possible to get Beckett help? Cause they put him in multiple schools. And then she said, they sent him out for wilderness programs. Oh, it's some real floundering energy there. Again, stability yeah. is not provided by sending him through every single type of educational format and every type of wilderness program and letting him follow every single hobby he might be interested in. But also wilderness programs is the word for what Paris Hilton, yes. the schools she went to, which are not really wilderness programs. They're like get kids in line programs that are like really damaging to their health because they're abusive schools. And I'm like, was he truly hiking on a mountain <laughs> or was he in a quote unquote wilderness program? I was so curious too, because she described their parenting arrangement as like a 50-50 split of the houses, which I wonder if that's accurate or not. But even in the best situations that are really collaborative and everybody's like a team parent these kids together after a divorce, the 50-50 split is hard. Yeah. We just don't have any exploration of like how any of that went down. I'm so sad for her because it comes across as just putting the whole thing on him. Mm-hmm. And then out yeah. of the blue... She tells us when he dies that Julie says, he's dead and I blame you. Yeah. But we don't get any framing for that either. This is the saddest thing about this book to me. I wish she had not even addressed his death versus what happened here. That's how I feel. I'm like, you needed more time or this is not for you to address. Everyone listening, just be in the right place for this. I'm going to read some of this. First, she says, His calls proclaiming his desire to get better became an empty refrain. We'd heard it so many times before, but he sounded more and more paranoid. He became obsessed with guns again. I'm sorry, you never mentioned the first time, ma'am. And got caught up in crazy conspiracy theories fueled in part by the grotesque circus coming out of the White House at the time and some media outlets. One, I don't know why we're being so vague. Two, that's never going to come up again. Like, this is huge. He's indoctrinated. Like, what are you talking about? And then she says it's pandemic and everyone is quarantined. And he calls her and he says, I can't do this. He was moaning and groaning in bed in his apartment in Denver, his computer at the bottom of his bed for our FaceTime. He said, I'm sick, mom. It's fentanyl. Linda and I had talked about our worries with Beckett that he had moved from heroin to fentanyl. We knew it was easy to get it in Denver. I said, I'm calling the ambulance. He said, no, don't and hung up. I didn't hear from him Monday morning. I emailed Julie, email now, the only way we could safely communicate and told her that Beckett was not at all well. Julie emailed me back that she would call in a welfare check. The police went over and then called us back. And basically the police were like, are you okay? And he said, yes. And so they left because he has to like show the intention to harm himself or others for them to do anything supposedly. That being said, she's then just like waiting for him to call. And he's told her it's fentanyl. And she said, Tuesday, no word from Beckett. By Wednesday morning, we still hadn't heard from him. Julie sent another welfare check. I was at home waiting to hear back and trying to keep my day as normal as possible. I went into the shower to get ready for the show. And when I came out, I could hear Bailey crying in her room. Linda met her at the door of our bedroom and they came into the bathroom. Bailey was wailing. He's dead. He's dead. Then I got another email from Julie. He's dead. Then another email. And I blame you. Over the course of the week, when he hadn't been in touch, I'd been dreading that he might die. And then later she says, another voice was yelling in my head, you can't save him, Melissa. You've tried and that is not helping him. He can only save himself. If he dies, you'll have to be able to walk through this. 
That's the part that got me. If he dies, you'll have to be able to walk through this. That's where I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because here's the thing. Losing a child is just the most impossibly hard. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. I can't fathom it. But I know that if you can integrate an experience like that, it's the most difficult thing that a person can go through, one of the most difficult things. And you can integrate it. You can help and serve a lot of people. Let me tell you how I know that's true. Sue Klebold's book, The Mother of One of the Columbine Shooters, that book is a gift to humanity. What that woman is mm-hmm. capable of doing, of seeing her role and understanding his path, because it is both true that you cannot control your children and also you are their parent and you can help them. Like those are impossibly mm-hmm. hard things to hold together, but they are true. And when somebody can do it well and can like fight and you feel her as Sukleebol just it's like she's battling a lion and you're just with her and she's just piecing it apart and just trying so hard because she, it's like if something is so hard is going to happen to me, I should at least get something out of it for somebody else, you know? There's just none of that here. For something that other people are going through on such a massive scale to lose a child this way, and like you said, this kind of like high-level gloss over, it's so heartbreaking. It's like compounding the heartbreak of this young man's loss. That's really well said. And what you're saying of like compounding, because it's so heartbreaking, it's really tough to get through. And then the way it's dealt with is even tougher. And you just can't help but feel like in the writing of this, like Melissa was robbed of her story. Beckett was robbed of his story. The whole family. This is just not the story that I think helps people heal, no. those involved or anybody the else. Reading. And this is written, embedded in the COVID days. And there is more detail and more emphasis on this daily Facebook live stream yes. that she and Linda were putting together. And the way that it's written, and I, I struggle to talk about this because, like, I don't want to add to anyone's pain around this. But the way that this was written was almost like she had this show that she was really into. And it was such a bummer that her personal life had this tragedy hit as they were orchestrating their COVID experience. I mean, it's just, it's awful, this part of the book. Yeah. It's just clear that whatever Melissa actually went through and is going through just isn't here. And I don't know if she knows what it is yet. The ability to bury it seems like a skill set she has. And yeah, it just wasn't time for a book about it. Well, and she just feels very much like a person that has been famous for a long time and has had a lot of staff around her telling her what she wants to hear. This would be a reoccurring theme if I was a regular co-host on a celebrity memoir show. When there's famous people who don't have anybody telling them the truth or hard truths, you can just hear it. And I heard a lot of that in this book. And what I think really made me sad about this section too is that I think there is space in our culture to say every life to be well-lived does not have to stretch into its 70s and 80s. Like, we do that. That When young people die, the only thing that we can say is, like, the loss of this, like, capacity to live a long life. Like, this is such a loss. And that is true. But I've seen some of my friends who've lost children, and they need to hear, like, they were here for a time, and they made impact, and maybe they did come to do what they were supposed to do or whatever. Like, I think there's some peace there, 
But that is hard. That is a very complicated thing to understand and to come to and to find peace. And it's like, she's just trying to skip there. She's just trying to skip to the part where you're like, can see someone's life beyond just the sad way they died, you know? Yeah. It's unearned. She skipped to the acceptance part where she just really accepted it without all of the work it takes for true acceptance. And I, I will also say this, in the last page of the book, we suddenly get a date and it says May, 2021. And she said, it has been a year since Beckett has died. To which I say, put the pen down. Word. Why do we got to do this right now? That's That's like three days in grief. A year's like uh, two and a half days. For the loss of a child? No. It's so soon. It's so soon. And and then that's kind of like how it ends with a ceremony she's doing for Beckett. And she said, I knew he would agree that it was ridiculous for me to torture myself. He'd seen me tortured long enough. Then I dig my hands into the velvet bag and pull out a fistful. Tears run down my face and I let the ashes fly. I will miss my boy, my beautiful son. But I keep his light within me. Its warmth and gentle nudge are a part of me now and forever. And then literally the top sentence of the last page of the book. On the night Beckett died, we all came together. Me and Linda, Bailey, Miller and Johnny Rose, the twins. And even Julie's ex-husband, who's now a close friend. Not Julie. Just Julie's ex-husband. I don't know, girl. I don't know, Melissa. I just think, too, you know, she never really actually, she talks about past life regressions and astrologers and psychics, but I do not remember a therapist being mentioned, an actual (laughs) mental health professional. It would be great to get one of those in there, wouldn't it? Does anybody remember that? I don't remember any of those. Uh, A couples therapist. That's right. But they were who they were seeing individually. They were seeing her together and then also as individuals, which she recognized was that's like, right. maybe not great. But, but she that's had to put did. that in there because the therapist, when she was listening to Melissa, made a face showing that Melissa was really right. And that, I don't remember if it was Tammy or Julie, was like actually being the worst right there. That's how we found that out. Oh my out. gosh. Yes, yes. And in the first book, they're in couples therapy and the therapist supposedly says to Julie, you blame Melissa for this, Melissa for that. Everything is Melissa's fault. What do you have to say for yourself, Julie? And then Julie, in response, that's when she says, well, I'm not gay. Oh, that's, what it's in. that's what's in the first okay. book. That's hmm. interesting. <laughs> Beth, I wish I could capture both hmm. your faces. Hmm. 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 So I made that sound a lot while reading this book. Hmm. It's torture because here's this woman who has been through a lot and who has done a lot of good with her one wild and precious life for a lot of people. And also this is such a catastrophe and such a mess and yeah. so dishonors so many people in the process, including herself. And like with your theory, Chelsea, did Melissa read it? Yeah. Did no, she, no. You know? I would put so much money on the fact that someone was like, oh, it's time to sell a book, either pay a bills or, you know, let's get your narrative out there, whatever it is. And she met with the collaborator for a small amount of time to discuss spirit, barely Beckett, and then Ghostwriter was on their own. I don't think Melissa picked it up again. I don't think Linda picked it up again. You can also tell in the first book, like, she's not a book person. It just story. makes me so mad, too, because you know she's like, there are great books being written, and she's going to get three million Today Show interviews about this book coming out. Good point. And also, like, really hardcore Melissa Etheridge fans, I really wonder what they're going to think. Or maybe they'll have seen it coming. I don't know. Um, are there any... Other anecdotes in the book that I missed before we move to the closing. 
here's something I noticed. It's really not about Melissa Etheridge, but just about like how different that time was and how far we've come, which is mm. now where we're having all these conversations about like, can an artist play a role that's not like aligned with their identity and how it was such a big deal to have straight people playing gay people with Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. And I'm like, oh yeah, that oh, was yeah. like a big deal back then. Okay, to give context to that, you know, the movie the movie Philadelphia and Tom Hanks has AIDS in it and he's playing a gay man. And Melissa really wrote like how how incredible it was for Yeah, she says not only two... because it was the first feature film to show a man dying of AIDS, but also because neither star actor was gay. Sending a message, let's tear down the wall of separation between gay and straight. Which I have to say this though. I, listen, you guys, get in the Patreon lounge, get in the Patreon comments. I think I need some other people to weigh in on okay. this. Okay. Because I do wonder if other people from this time were like, that's actually not what this was. And we wish gay actors had <laughs> been able to play out at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, could you be a gay man playing a gay man? Or once you were gay, were you not allowed to have these prestige movie roles? Is that really what it was? But I do remember that narrative. Like, well, Tom Hanks is playing a gay man. This is a big deal. Yeah, definitely a big deal. It's just so funny to like laud the fact that they were straight. And like, maybe that was it. Get in the Patreon. Make some comments. I, I want to know what it was. Yeah. yeah. But I thought that I was like, oh, wow, yeah. Because it, it is That's interesting opposite. to like read through that sort of, she doesn't do a lot of it. But like I said, I think those parts where she's really speaking to being this celebrity who didn't feel like she was out, then was out, then was sort of the poster child. That is a unique life experience. Poster child for gay divorce. Yes. Yes. Not an anecdote, but the other thing that I just kept ruminating on as I read this is that she kind of described herself and her sister, that her sister was the troubled one. So she was supposed to be great at everything. And then she writes Bailey exactly the same way without Ugh. any like introspection about that whatsoever. Oh, like, right. I mean, she says that she's like strong willed, but Bailey seems just lovely and kind of there. And like, she doesn't take an ounce of care from anyone at all. And super strong. And, like, I don't understand how she was able to do that writing. Well, again, now I'm pretending that she wrote it. But this look at her childhood without seeing that play out again among, with her own children. There's also a sentence about Bailey. She was like, I know Bailey wants to do something good in the world. And she'll find yeah, out what that is. I'm I, sure she will. And I was like, huh. Not the most inspiring sentence. Well, and it also sounded like the exact vibe that her mother gave to her all the time. Yeah, which, like, I guess you can try. Sure. Listen, listen, though, I cannot fathom what it must be like to be the child of a celebrity like that. Tom Hanks, by all accounts, is a wonderful human. And yet we have Chet. It's a tough situation. It's just because what are you going to do being an accountant? You're always going to be a Nepo baby. Like, everybody's going to sort of doubt whether you made it on your own. You can't just go be a plumber. You're not trying to make your own way and pay your own bills. Like, I can't. It's just so bad. You could do a whole, whole podcast on celebrity babies. It's just, it's a rough one. I mean, one. I could, except, like, I need your point of view because I just have mine, which is, like, sounds like you have a lot of resources so you can actually do whatever you want. But you can see that, like... Poor baby Beckett was like 14 and they're like, what's your passion in life? He's 15. He doesn't have to yeah. find out his passion at 15. That's too much pressure yeah. to yeah. find your fullest expression of yourself at 16 years old. How about you just, your yeah. job is to get grades and go show up at school. That's your job. That's your passion. Do that. Let's just start there. 
that's a lot of pressure. That's why I sometimes get mad at Oprah because I feel like that's what she was teaching me my whole life on the Oprah show. And it was too much pressure. So many journal entries. Too Oprah m- says, what's your purpose? I know. I'm like, Oprah, too much pressure. I'm too young. <laughs> Let's go into the book deal test. Okay, first question. Was the author vulnerable in the sharing of their truth? <sighs> Is there a required word count for that? Like, what word count do they need to be being vulnerable, not counting song lyrics? Like, less over five? The whole book. The books Books are supposed to be gifts. I'm giving her a no. Okay. No. I want to, I feel bad, but I mean, there's glimmers. That's what I'm saying. Like glimmers. Okay. Glimmers. Under you 500 glimmers. words is probably not enough to pass the test. And I think she's probably sitting under 500 words on that. Okay. I would I like say there answer. is no new vulnerability here. Right. Hmm. She could have lived her life and not shared almost any of this. Right. Right. But she chose yeah. to share, share some of it and that's vulnerable. But I don't think she right. added anything to what maybe we could have gotten from Google in this book about her life story. I think there's more on Google, actually. I do as well. I mean, there's more probably on one of her ex-wives' Instagrams. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second question. Was it entertaining to read? I think so. Bad things are entertaining in their own way. Very true. Beth? No. I thought it was just so disappointing and so weird. And again, I'm just really sad that I don't think it does her justice, you know? Mm. I agree. I agree. Um, I'm also going, no. I think at this point, I just read too many of these where, like, if it's going to be bad, I need you to go Jamie Lynn Spears bad. Yeah, yeah. I need full tilt bad. I can't do this, like, I mean, she talked about some really deep stuff in the middle and poorly structured amongst, like, trashier stuff. Yeah, you can't, you're not going to get to the death of a child in under 180 pages. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I didn't like it. Okay, last question. Now, this could go either way. We never know. Did reading this book elevate your life in any way? Yes. I think this book made me realize that you need to make a decision to tell a story or not tell a story. Mm. But the dangling of a story is not is great. unkind. It's unkind to everyone involved. Oh, that's a masterclass for all memoir writers. That's true. <laughs> right there. That's true. Yeah. Well, I read... um. Claire Dieter's Monster, which Chelsea, you have to read because she talks about memoirs a lot in there. It's really good. And she says a good memoirist doesn't think they have it all figured out. That's not a pleasant reading experience. And she thinks mm. she's had it, has it all figured out. Good point. No one wants to read that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I usually feel like a book has moved me and I, I can get a lot from a bad book. And yeah. I think I have to go with no. Yeah, unless it just it's just a cautionary so tale. I mean... Can a cautionary tale elevate I you? I got enough of those. I've read Brittany's mom's book. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm full up. Full up. <laughs> Thank you both so much for coming on this podcast. Please tell everyone where they can find and follow your most incredible podcast. It's the only way I listen to the news and get my news. Like It's Thank so you. beautiful. So tell everyone everything. Well, we love you. We are so happy to be here, obviously. Um, yes, Pantsy Politics. We take a different approach to the news. That's what we say. We don't want you to leave stressed out and overwhelmed and anxious. That's our goal. So you can find our podcast anywhere you find podcasts. We are on Instagram. You can find everything else, our newsletter, our books, our speaking engagements at pantsypoliticsshow.com. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
That's all for this week's episode. If you love this podcast, if you want more of this podcast, go join us on Patreon. If you become a Patreon member, you get one bonus episode every month. You get an email every episode of photos that go with the episode. You get a newsletter of all the best DMs that I get that month where we like learn and recap things. You also get access to our lounge, which is a cookies only chat lounge where we chat about episodes and all kinds of things. There's also other tiers. So you can join for just a dollar a month or $5 a month. And then for higher level tiers, we do a live book club on Zoom once a month where we listen to the episode of the podcast and discuss that episode. So no reading required. That's patreon.com slash Chelsea Montez. And that is where we love your support. And that's also where the community is. A huge thank you to our producer, Kate Downey, our episode engineer, DJ Bounty. No, that's right. It's Marcus Hom, formerly known as DJ Bouncy House assistant Jaron Padre, and our executive producer Jordan Mercado. Our team does so much to make this podcast happen, and I just thank them endlessly. Also, a big thank you to our product partners at Tenteo, Natalie's Juice, and Pattern Brands. They have given us and our guests so many great products. We are going to link each brand in the show notes, and you can find all of the products that I love on my Instagram highlights where I am always on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes and I'll see you there or for another episode soon. You know I might have been born just plain white trash but fancy words are my name.